Hello and welcome to Two Sweary Dads, a podcast about parenting and other dadly pursuits. I'm Trevor Scott. And I'm Ben Slinger. So today we have a very special guest, my dad, David. Say hello, hello. everyone. Hi, everyone. Hello. Welcome. Thank you. So thank you for joining us, Dad. No worries. Uh, this, this has probably been the most nervous I've actually been getting into a podcast. I <laughs> Talking don't know to your own dad. Say. <laughs> oh, well. Yeah, because you and me usually script everything out ahead of time. Yes. <laughs> and as I said to you before, don't ask a question you don't already know the answer to. <laughs> Although you don't want to know the answer to, yeah. That, Indeed. that was my response the other day. <laughs> <laughs> so, I suppose... We'll start off with a with a simple question, Dad. What is your favourite memory of being a parent? Oh, I thought you were going to ask, what is your favourite child? <laughs> well, that's that's going to be too heavy. <laughs> well, I'm lucky. I can ha- I've got a favourite daughter and a favourite son. Ah, uh, that helps. Yeah, yeah, it does help. <laughs> okay, so the question is, what are my favourite moments? Is that right? Yeah, favourite moments of being a parent. Okay, I can't I can't boil that down to one, uh, because it's different in regards to how I think of you, and it's different of how I think of Kylie. Okay, so, so do me first because I'm most important. Okay, <laughs> yeah, and you are my most important son, guaranteed. <laughs> All right, so I would say the best moment that comes to mind is when mum and I were walking in Kyneton on holidays and we got a phone call from you saying that you'd been accepted into Planet. Yes, the place that I work. Yes, that's right. And uh, I I can truthfully say that uh, I was in tears when I heard that. I was just so happy and so proud. It was was like 10 years ago now. Jeez, it's a... It's a, um, a certainly a good memory for me, but what about what about what about Kylie? What was your favourite memory with Kylie? Mm. Again, when you think of memories, uh, a lot of the ones that, you, that happened so far back you can't remember because they get replaced. So when Kylie gave birth to Riley, Mum and I were in another room, and uh, we could hear the whole labor process and i think when we finally realized that she'd given birth to riley uh wow that was a moment to remember which i i must say because we haven't actually mentioned riley on the podcast much riley is seven months older than james and is your first grand grandchild yes he is yes yes so with a with a siblings very soon to follow i hear Yes. Yes. In uh, any day now. Although, <laughs> any second. Uh, <laughs> you might have yes. to leave soon. <laughs> I may get called away. <laughs> and that's fine. We'll just schedule in for <laughs> schedule you in for for another day, and I know we'll go do a clip rain clip check. Or something like that. <laughs> Damn, it would have been a good excuse. <laughs> so what I, what I find interesting is is you've gone away from from the memories that I thought that you were going to you were going to say. Which, because we asked this one to Ben's dad, and the, the memories were pretty much, oh, proudest moment was the, was the birth of my of my first first child, and and all these sort of things, and and we both sort of said, oh yeah, it was sort of the birth as well, whereas Dad's gone, you know, a lot later in life, which is great, yeah, a lot great more recent, hear. and 
but and I mean that's you know obviously great memories as your children achieve their own things as well. Like and you know, the, the, those are the sorts of memories that you and I obviously have yet to come and are looking forward to. I think that's that's great. Yeah, and and I suppose it all depends on uh, the age of the person you're speaking to as well, because uh, like I said, there've been so many good memories. But you are right. <laughs> uh, yeah, to have to pick one is is it's like saying who is your best child. You just cannot pick between the of course. the five that I have. <laughs> oh, I didn't tell you about the other three, did I? <laughs> From the secret family, indeed. <laughs> that we don't talk about. That I didn't even know about. <laughs> <laughs> um, so let's let's take it back a little bit. Can you tell us about your your life growing up because because you did have a little bit of a a different sort of family life didn't you i certainly did okay so i I was born in england and i came out when i was around about two years old my mum got homesick and took me back to england and i came back again when i was around about i suppose three and a half four see that that's something i didn't actually know i didn't know that you went back no, it was something that I found out a lot later in life that I didn't actually realise that either. So you got an extra stamp in your passport, yep. <laughs> yep, <laughs> although I wouldn't have had one then. Um, yeah, so uh, grew up in Broadmeadows. Then my mum died and uh, she died of, well, it was termed to me that she that everything she ate turned to sugar. So therefore... Logically speaking, it must have been diabetes that she died from. Mm-hmm. And uh, I lived in Broadmeadows for a little bit longer with just Dad and my two older brothers and my granddad. And then Dad met a, uh, a lady. And the next thing I knew, they told me that they were getting married. And all of a sudden, you went from having two older brothers to having how many siblings? <laughs> uh, two more brothers and two more s- and and two sisters. And how old were you at, at that point when that happened, Dave? Okay, I would have been in grade four, grade four, no, grade five. I would have mm. been in so ten or eleven. Yeah, yeah, it's a pretty then. pretty big shock to the system life change at at that age you know oh absolutely yeah um and uh and look my brothers i call them my brothers and sisters um they are brilliant they are i have more contact with them than i do my older two brothers it's just one of those things that because there was such a distance between the ages of my my two older brothers and myself I gravitated just to uh, having my step-siblings as being my, what I regard as my real brothers and sisters. Mm -hmm. After that, um, I left school when I was uh, 16, 17. I went into the ANZ Bank, did a bit of work there, left there, joined the police force, got kicked out of the police force virtually. what happens is they they have what's called retention, which is the final formal um, exam, and uh, I apparently failed that by two points. Oh, so 
that's a that's a pretty big shift from a bank to the the police force. Like, was there what what was it about the police force that made you sort of head in that direction? Well, that's always what I wanted to be. Oh, okay, was, that, was yep. a policeman. Yep. So, and I was absolutely devastated when uh, they mm, yeah, they bet, kicked geez. me out. So I joined Australia Post after that. You didn't go postal, did you? (laughs) (laughs) I may have felt like it if I was a little bit older, (laughs) but no, I didn't. And um, then I was foolishly talked into becoming an insurance rep. And that I I didn't realise I had insurance wrapping in my blood. Trevor, did you just lose some respect for your dad? (laughs) (laughs) That was the worst job I had ever done. And what year was that? Oh, it would have been 70, 74, 75. So, a good six, no, five to six years before I'm in the picture. Good. Yep. <laughs> and uh, while I was there, I just looked and looked for other jobs. And there was an advertisement for the prison service. And uh, you had to go for a, uh, a psych exam. And out of the something like about 800 people that went for that mm-hmm. they selected 16 to go on their course and See, I that, was one, that's much one better than 16. that's much better than when I um when I joined planet I mean planet was only 150 resumes or something like that <laughs> and and 20 got selected out of that and luckily they didn't have a psych exam Trevor <laughs> yeah <laughs> <would> have failed <laughs> yeah so um that would have to be one of the best jobs I had done mm-hmm uh, and uh, I stayed there for about 20 years. Wow. So what sort of work were you doing there? I was, well, I started off as being a, a prison officer, <laughs> then a senior prison officer, and uh, by the end I was an acting chief prison officer. Wow. That was, I only left because they closed down Pentridge, mm-hmm. and the only offer that they were talking about was sending a lot of people up country. And I didn't want to go up country. Out to the, which prison was it? Oh, they're there? talking about any country prison. They weren't given any guarantees. Oh, jeez. <laughs> but, but before uh, it came to that, um, I had the common sense to uh, do my Bachelor of Arts in Criminal Justice. Which then led to your, your job at the um, Community Based Corrections? That's right. Yep. And... Uh, Community-based corrections was fun at at the start, but uh, it was pretty much a dead end job. Yep. I, I was already a acting second in charge of uh, Box Hill Corrections, and there were only four managers throughout Victoria, Ooh. and uh, my chances of getting one of those jobs was going to be pretty remote. So can you explain? So is that yeah? I was going to say community can, get community based corrections is for a listening audience. I was going and for me, I was going to ask. <laughs> okay, so people who go to courts and don't go to jail get put on correction order. Uh, sorry, um, either uh, community based orders or intensive corrections orders. Now, an intensive correction order is a term of imprisonment served in the community and uh, community-based orders um, are not 
uh, terms of imprisonment, but uh, a, a different penalty for imprisonment. And so is that sort of a community service of yes. sorts? Yeah. They, they usually all have a community service component. That must be interesting having come from sort of the, the actual prison and going into community corrections and seeing the differences there in, in sort of, I mean, obviously different levels of, of crime involved, I imagine, but sort of how do you feel about the differences between those two sort of methods of, of correction? I kind of had, had only, just talking about it now, realised how much the word correction sounds really ominous when you talk about it in this context. <laughs> okay. Um, I, I think it's like any judicial system. You've got to have uh, different levels of punishment to suit the crimes and I sometimes believe community-based correction sorry community-based orders are not regarded as being very severe or not severe enough if you like mm -hmm. and I think that comes from the community uh, interpretation of what that is but also offenders I think they treat it pretty lightly as well so there are a lot of breaches of orders mm. which you then take back to court and what people have got to realize is that if if the magistrate is convinced that it is a serious breach they can always resentence on the, on the very first crime right. that, you, that they're for the that they're on the order for and that can be a, a term of imprisonment yeah wow and um what what I'm now realizing is because you were in Box Hill, of course that's how that's how I ended up at Box Hill Magistrates Court for my first lot of um, work experience. Because you I was going to say you're a magistrate I, there. I thought you were going to say for your first lot of Grand Theft Auto or something like you know, <laughs> no. had some criminal past I didn't know about. No, I'm now remembering that I that I went and had lunch with Dad every now and again. But yeah, I was hoping to actually get to see Dad in court. But he didn't have to go across to court that week. Mm. Is that is that something? Did you ever aspire, Trevor, to follow in your dad's footsteps? Um, I think I must have at one stage, because you know I I did ask. Now remembering that I did ask dad to, if I could, you know, go go to the magistrate's court or something, or if, I think I was actually hoping to work at work at dad's um dad's work, but obviously mm. that was a little bit hard, <laughs> given given the sort of people that he was dealing with. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know if you can get work experience positions in that sort of <laughs> job. No, no. But the the magistrates' court was certainly a um a, a different experience. I got to got to sit on a, a few different court cases and yeah, that'd be super interesting. Make make friends with the magistrate. And better than better than me working at Computer Whiz for two weeks. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know that it'd be more interesting than that though, would it? <laughs> uh, that was a pretty boring to couple of weeks. <laughs> It was just retail. It was just retail. Like I wasn't actually doing anything useful with computers. Hmm. In fact, so, my only retail experience, pretty much. <laughs> well, ret retail's you know where you always where everyone always starts, and you just got out of it a lot earlier than most people. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> so after community based corrections, Dad, when or when, when did you finish up there? I think I was there for around about three years, and another person. I was working with had pretty much the same idea as I had about uh, the direction they were going or weren't going 
and they actually applied for a child protection job mm-hmm. and I had never ever considered child protection so I then started looking in the papers for advertisements and I saw one and I had to do an interview down in Frankston for a position and it was because I had my degree that I was actually able to go for the interview Mm -hmm. but I didn't necessarily have the right qualifications because I didn't have social work as as a qualification and I didn't have um, uh, psychology as a as a qualification but I had elements of that in my degree and I was able to convince the interviewer that those elements were relevant and my previous work in the other areas were relevant and one of the big things that they were discussing at that stage was case management so I had to prove to the interviewers that I had experience in case management which luckily I did through um, community-based corrections and to a lesser extent it had been introduced in uh, prisons as well so this person gave me the chance then I stayed there for must be 15 years I stayed there yeah until you retired earlier this year on April the 1st, <laughs> which I thought was very appropriate. <laughs> April Fool's. <laughs> you got to stay here another five years. <laughs> yeah, they, they didn't call you up on April 2nd and say, nope, just kidding. No, uh, I think they were worried I might have done, might have <laughs> uh, contacted them and said, no, I've changed my mind. <laughs> <laughs> so that gives us an idea as the, the sort of you know, work you've gone through over over the years and all that sort of stuff. But I suppose there is a little bit more important things that, that happened around, you know, the mid to late 70s, like you met my... Star Wars. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Jaws. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that was a little bit earlier. <laughs> so, where did you meet Mum? When? When and where? Okay. Met Mum through Blackburn Church of Christ. Mm-hmm. We went to the same youth group together, which was, uh, crikey, what was it called? YCF, Young Christian Fellowship. And it was it was quite weird, really. <laughs> I had a group of guys who I hung around with, and I met mum, and uh, I thought she was great, but I never gave myself a chance of actually uh, being with her as a boyfriend-girlfriend. Out of your league. (laughs) Yeah, I I thought so, absolutely. And so I tried to get her to go out with one of my other friends. And Interesting strategy. (laughs) And, well, I thought, well, that way I might get her on rebound. (laughs) So anyway, uh, that never really eventuated and we had an all-night session at the church where the the youth group that we were attending was going to stay all night and then uh, do some stuff the next day. I've, I've got to say, I'm really glad that you didn't say all night and then the word orgy. <laughs> <laughs> I was wondering where that was going to. Mm. <laughs> I'm, I'm like, totally I don't know. I know. I, I got to say, I, I do wonder about these youth groups. You know, 
<laughs> I, I actually may have stayed there a little bit longer. <laughs> <laughs> so so anyway, this this particular night, I didn't feel tired, so I was out walking, and Mum didn't feel tired, and she was out walking, and we met each other outside, and we got into a conversation, and the relationship developed from there. And the next day, we went to um, One Tree Hill, and her girlfriends saw us together and wanted to know are we an item are we together or what's going on and things like that so and that's how our relationship started now did you have long hair at this stage yes <laughs> yes i did long hair and a beard yeah there you go. because i, I remember, so look i'm sporting at the moment <laughs> i remember um Growing up, and I had long hair, and you kept on giving me, you know, um, oh, when are you going to cut your hair? When are you going to cut your hair? Until I found out, like, <laughs> four or five years later, that you had long hair when you met mum. <laughs> I'm like, come on. You complained about me having long hair, and you well, had long hair. Well, Trevor, know. was this before or after you you were together with Bianca, though? It was before that I had long hair. Oh, okay. No then excuse, then. Since... <laughs> Should have known, David, that that's that's what it takes. <laughs> <laughs> it, be, it, it was one of those things that uh, it's a matter of what you look like, and I always thought you could look <laughs> handsomer. That, that that's his polite way of saying you just you just weren't pulling it off, Trevor. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I'm pulling off the the cut down beard a little bit more. Yeah, than yeah. the um, than the Santa Claus beard that I had. <laughs> <laughs> you, you cut that off at the you cut the Santa Claus beard off at the wrong time, though. Trevor, you could yeah. have grown it for another couple of months and it's getting wide could enough. Been, could have been Santa. <laughs> <laughs> ah, now that brings a story up though, doesn't it? About yes, it does. Santa. <laughs> but we'll get, to, we'll get to oh, that. Okay. We'll okay. get to that. Write it down. Make sure we get um, back to that. I want to hear it. Yeah, I I actually, I, w- I had that written down in my notes. <laughs> uh, it's obviously a, a popular story then. It must be. Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> so... You're going out for how long before you before you pop the question? Hmm. Good question. Uh, dear, 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 dear. Mum would have been 17 because I actually um, helped her with her driving, took her out in, in my car for driving, my form of driving lessons anyway. Mm-hmm. And so we actually were going out for probably about good grief. <laughs> Sorry, I'm trying to work out. She was 23 when we got married. So there yes. you go. We were going out for six years, maybe even longer before so we actually got, you got married. Together. I, I, yes. Okay. Well, that was going to be my, my next question. How long then until Trevor came along? But it sounds like about, what, three years? It was two years. Two years. Two years. years. Of course, I was thinking of 81. That's me. You're 80. Yes, I'm 80. So, this is a question that um, we've we've both answered, but I'd like you to answer that. When did you know that you were ready to have kids or or what was the the conversation that sort of sparked the idea of having kids? Uh, I think it was a matter of when your mum, Helen, was ready. Mm Mm-hmm. That's a, that's a common answer. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, so she's got to go through it all. Um, 
and uh, it's it's pointless trying to force something on uh, onto someone that they may not want to take responsibility for. But uh, Mum just knew when she was right for it. And were you? Did you? Had you known you were ready, or did it sort of strike you when she was ready that oh yeah, that's something that I want in my life as well? Well, I suppose I was ready uh, for children to come along pretty much within a year of getting married. Yeah. But um, through, and I don't even remember the conversations, but I just know that uh, the time just wasn't right Mm. at that stage. And let's face it, um, when you're starting off, you've got to grow financially grow uh, psychologically together and uh, it's it's never the perfect time but it is a time when you feel comfortable with that next phase yeah absolutely so I came along in 80 so it means that sometime in 1979 you'd you'd decided but then when you when you were going for Kylie because obviously I was so perfect that that you decided that you wanted a second one to see if you could you know, hit the jackpot twice. Wait, I'm not sure that logic makes sense there, Joe. <laughs> well, it must have. No, they, there they was obviously a, back if I wasn't perfect. There was obviously a gap that needed filling. <laughs> Do you notice I haven't taken any part of this conversation? <laughs> Diplomacy. Well, yeah. Well, well, there must be there must be something wrong with the second one because you didn't want another one after that. Ah, <laughs> uh, no, again, it's a matter of where, I would have had more, but Mum said that was it. Okay, and uh, you just don't argue with Mum. Yep. So she got perfection, then didn't, and <laughs> and didn't want any more. Well, see, we got the but, pigeon pair, <laughs> a boy and a girl. You did. Ben nearly had the pigeon pair, but then he went and had twins. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> and and now now the whole family's out of balance with you know three girls and two boys. I know that's that's why the I think the question of a fourth is still up in the air. We need to balance it up. Yeah, odd numbers are bad. Someone misses out somewhere on the line. Yeah, well, I'm and being that the two of them are twins, it'll, it'll probably be the other one. <laughs> so, some of my favourite memories as a kid. Well, actually, because you were working at the prison, Dad, you you were working all different shifts. Mm-hmm. It was very shift worky. Yep. Some of my favourite memories are, are you on the motorbike, and me getting up at six o'clock in the morning, which nowadays doesn't even happen. Um, but me getting up at six o'clock in the morning, jumping on the back of the bike, and literally getting a ride up the driveway. <laughs> and my all, all of about <laughs> all of about fifteen to twenty feet, <laughs> if that. <laughs> Did you still did you still have the long hair when you had the motorbike? Because that would just sort yes. of complete the look. Yeah, I, I did have long hair. <laughs> In actual fact, uh, I don't know if we've still got it, but there I made the paper, the Sun, because Norm Gallagher had been imprisoned, and I was at what's called East Gate at Pentridge, and the media was outside, and uh, I was scanning him as he was entering the prison with a metal scanner. And, uh, yeah, so I had long hair and a beard in that photo. Unfortunately, because it's a, because it's a um, newspaper photo, I remember seeing it going, yeah, that's e- extremely pixelated. <laughs> yep, <laughs> it was. Just, <laughs> Thank goodness no one could recognise me. So, I mean, you, you working in the prison system means you, 
you had a different, a totally different view on on people like Chopper Reed because you actually met him quite a few times, didn't you? Yes. Because I, I remember when the Chopper Reed film came out, I think I remember that you you didn't want to you didn't want to see it because it, you thought it might glorify someone who really was not a nice person. Yeah, Would that be right. Uh, and I I didn't know Chopper Reed really really well. No one ever did, I don't believe. Uh, but uh, he had a reputation, and his reputation was quite aggressive but rarely was that aggression towards prison officers. I heard, and I believe it was said, that his father was a policeman, and therefore he, he uh, I suppose, respected the uniform as opposed to the person. Mm-hmm. But, uh, no, he, um, he could be very violent, obviously, and uh, it makes you wonder about his upbringing. Mm. Well... I know that I'm not very violent, so I must have had a pretty good, pretty good upbringing. But I'm, I think I might be blocking out a little bit of it. <laughs> sure. Um, I, I mean, that's an interesting um, thought because obviously, going from being a prison officer to child protection, you must have, you know, you sort of must have made made those connections and seen some of those kids heading in that direction. I imagine that's a pretty helpless feeling to have in that in that case. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but child protection. There are a whole lot of different areas of child protection. You've got, you've got um, teenagers and uh, up to the age of eighteen. Uh, but a lot of others that we deal with are babies and uh, preschool and obviously uh, primary school age children. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So mostly you're dealing with the parents and trying to change the parental view of how to parent their children, mm. but as there are some children who when they get to their teenage years it makes you wonder what sort of future they have because they don't have the support around them that I think is required for successful upbringing of children Mm. some of them were placed in in homes as in uh, government-run or agency-run homes with other children and their parental figures were people doing shift work and rather than a foster family Uh, and uh, I sometimes think that some children who went into those homes came out if not if not the same a little bit worse yeah than than what they may have done if they'd gone into uh a more family orientated home as in a foster home yeah yeah i mean even so uh, my my parents are, are foster parents and have had quite a few kids live with them for varying amounts of time and and even then you know you know they've had kids with them for even a few years and they've just they've seen them sort of then leave and and grow up a bit more you know, grow up and you know it's very easy for them to to think well they haven't even really made a difference because some of those kids then do sort of still you know head in that direction of 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 crime and and aggression and and violence and and you sort of just wonder yeah like i guess what does it take and and what you can do for those kids and i mean there mm. probably there probably isn't isn't much it's it's just the situation as it is but well it really raises the question um have we 
got it right or even remotely are, are we in the right direction I would suggest that most parents love their children so do we do right for the children to remove them from their family or should we focus on trying to keep families together and put supports in place that in the in the attempt to try and make the ultimate difference yeah the problem with that of course is that drugs comes into it mm. and uh, i'm sure that there are many parents who believe that they can give up their drugs for their children but reality shows that they can't yeah no it's it's a very very hard situation and hard to know what to do um i mean yeah i think you're right putting putting supports in place is definitely uh, you know, a first step, I would imagine, uh, and and just because uh, I'm sure that a lot of, you know, a lot of just even the situation of of why they're even on drugs and and different things is is coming from you know aspects of of poverty or you know different reasons that they're sort of underprivileged and obviously putting supports in place to hopefully counter that to some degree would help. Yeah, but it's like rehabilitation, people can only be rehabilitated or change mm. um, if they have the willingness to do it or not only the willingness but the uh, the uh, encouragement to do it yeah definitely no they're, they're I'm sure that there are a lot of people it's just you know it's sort of ingrained in them at that point it would be very hard to to change the behavior at, at which point you know it, it does make sense to to remove the children and, and try to put them in a more stable environment Mm. With with the two with the two longer serving jobs that you've had, Dad, the prison the prison service and the child protection, you would have seen a lot of the dark side of humanity. But you know, how did seeing people in the prison affect how you how you parented? Hmm. Prisons is working in prisons was not as bad as some people might imagine. A lot of the days were spent up towers just watching sitting down and just being observant nothing really startling nothing really um, uh, my in fact it was more mind numbing than anything a lot of other time was spent on on gates letting prisoners and visitors in and out mm -hmm. interaction with prisoners I never found to be difficult or hard because I always felt you just need to treat them as human beings yep. and to only really have those negative impacts when it was warranted as in uh, if if they assaulted someone or uh, if they uh, did something against the rules and regulations but uh, most of the time it was a, a, a bit of a game they played the game and we played a game and we just lived our lives in relative harmony. Whereas when it comes to child protection, all of a sudden you're involved in possibly removing children from their parents. Yep. And parents become very defensive, very aggressive and obviously very angry with, with the prospect of losing their children. And uh, it was it was tougher decisions to be made in child protection than what there were in prisons. 
did you ever come across any other people, I mean, in the prison particularly, um, other prison officers that that sort of did let the power go to their head? Because you do hear about that and, you know, the sort of, that it is very easy to sort of lose that aspect of humanity of the prisoners that you are sort of in charge of. And it sounds like that's obviously something that you kept in the front of your mind, but did you ever come across others who sort of abused that position at all? And, I mean, if so, I'm sure that was that was probably difficult to, to see or to deal with. Yeah. There were one or two prison officers who were aggressive in their own right. However... Uh, in the early days when I was there that was sort of recognised and they were put into positions where their contact with prisoners was able to be controlled Mm. if you like but in I think it was my first or second year of being in Pentridge um, there was what we call the B Division riots and uh, one of the guys who had a bit of a reputation he was in his own element because uh, there were a whole lot of guys up on the roof and uh, he was given the opportunity to go up there and get them down and uh, he thrived in that in that environment mm. and uh, he did a job that not many others would have wanted to have done mm. so the Department of Corrections obviously pay particular attention to make sure that the wrong sort of people don't become involved as being officers but it's like anything uh, you just don't know who you get until a situation arises but I I think it's there were some that had reputations but uh, I never saw them in action Mm -hmm. oh I mean it's good to good to hear that yeah that the Department of Corrections does sort of obviously take that into account and aware and are aware of that sort of thing uh, I mean, as you as you would hopefully expect, but you sort of you do hear you do hear stories about the wrong wrong sort of people going into those sorts of jobs. So yeah, well, you, you sort of hope that after a while they can get weeded out. But, yeah, uh, yeah. I'm not sure that everyone does. Well, I I remember in high school, I uh, I can't remember what class we had, but we I think it was actually social studies. We managed to invite you along to actually speak to our class. If, if you remember dad you came in you came in uniform and and you spoke to our class about being a prison officer and that was where I first heard the story about the Jika Jika fires mm-hmm. and obviously I was very young at the time I think that was 1982 that it had occurred but it was rather a, a scary thing to to find out that you were you were involved in in such a, a dangerous riot would you say that it was it was worse than the um, than the B division riot or Oh, t- totally different um, because it wasn't a riot. It wasn't actually a riot, okay. No, it was... Unless you can get a picture of what Jika looks like, it looks like a spoke spokes on a wheel with um, living areas and sleeping areas at the end of each of the spokes. And some prisoners on one side had decided that they uh, wanted some better conditions so there were six to each um, on their side actually i think there might have only been five at that stage but uh, all five of them agreed to set uh, some materials off um, on fire and 
they had done a lot of preparation and this is only uh, a lot of hearsay uh, from other people who were part of the investigation afterwards but apparently what had happened is that they had collected rubber hoses from washing machines the idea was that they were they would put the rubber hoses into the toilet system and get past the water level and get to the free air uh, in the uh, in the uh, air pipe mm-hmm. and so once they started the fire they could then go breathe through the pipe and uh, they would all be safe and good but uh, and this is where, um, something that I hadn't thought of even even though uh, uh, I thought that would have been the safe way of doing it as well but the problem was that the, the length of hoses that they chose to use when they exhaled it didn't all yeah. frigid the air so they were breathing their own oxygen Carbon dioxide, back yeah. in and probably they died of or they at least would have become unconscious with uh, the carbon dioxide uh, rebreathing in and unfortunately all those guys on that side died but I, I kind of don't understand why they'd even try to breathe, breathe out into the hose when they could just breathe out in the air around them <laughs> because know, that would make more sense because they knew there was pretty there were some pretty clever guys on that side and they knew that what they were going to burn which was uh, the foam foam from bedding mm-hmm. and and other things that that all had noxious uh, uh, gases that would come off from that but what they did the the doors are all pneumatic and the only way into the unit was through a pneumatic door and they successfully uh, used the um, the net of a tennis court, which they had tennis courts in their yard, uh, to prevent the door from being opened. So we, many, many people were in the yef, uh, trying to uh, smash down the door, cut it down, uh, put a, um, uh, a hole through the the glass that was there and some of the glass was uh, bulletproof and some of the glass was only toughened wind resistant glass but uh, it was very hard to even with a sledgehammer to put a hole through it when they eventually got a hole through it they then had to use um, big exhaust hoses to, from the fire brigade to try and get the poisonous air out of there mm. but th- then the question was because of the air conditioning and the connection from one side to the other the other side had prisoners in it which had no bearing on the uh, the protests the other guys were doing so one of the focuses had to be to open up their side but because of the fire it played havoc with the, elect- the electrical service and their gate their doors couldn't be opened either so a lot of time was spent on opening that side to save those guys uh, as opposed to the guys who created the fire in the first place so when we eventually opened up side two of of this particular unit i and another few guys went into that area without breathing apparatus to try and find 
the other prisoners and uh, to get them to safety. And uh, probably a foolish thing to have done, but... Uh, but obviously you're here today, so in this reality <laughs> at least, it, it, was a, it was an okay decision. <laughs> yeah, well, it was a decision that had to be made very, very quickly. Yeah, geez, I bet. But what, what astounded me is when I was talking to you later on to find out that you weren't actually supposed to be working that night and you instead were swapped onto the shift by ha- having a friend who, who literally wanted the night off. Well, uh, not quite like that. Um, or was it a poker game? That, no, that, <laughs> that, that guy suffered smoke inhalation and in theory, so did I. Yep. Um, and in, you know, in hindsight, I should never have taken the shift, but there was an offer of, um, of uh, overtime. Okay. That, that night so I took the offer of overtime to get more money and uh, the reality is I really shouldn't have I, I really should have taken the opportunity to have gone to the hospital to make sure I was okay and uh, but yeah it's one of those things where you pretend you're brave and whatever and uh, that nothing hurts you and uh, you just do what you have to do jeez that sounds like a pretty harrowing experience all up jeez yeah yeah, yeah. um Overall, um, what I think what annoys you a little bit more is when the family then comes out and accuses you of not trying to do everything you can to mm. save the people there, and uh, when you know that you you did everything you did. that yeah. was that you could possibly do. Mm. But of course, if if you put it on the other side, you know, and something happened to say me or or Kylie in in a similar situation of of or or even you know some other sort of situation where there's a, where there's a fire you could you could see their logic of of trying to blame someone i think that's just human nature we all yeah. want to blame someone else anyone but ourselves or or the people involved yeah so a number of years later i believe it was at one of the prison christmas parties there was a story with santa nope you're wrong I was wrong. <laughs> yep. It was the uh, tennis club. It was the tennis club, okay. Yep. And uh, for around about a, a number of years, a particular um, a tennis player from the club would play Santa. And then that person was a little bit unwell one year, so I, I took on the responsibility of, of playing Santa. And uh, it actually happened for, I think, two years before you get into the the one that you remember mm-hmm. and uh, the one that you remember was um, you recognise that it was me because of the gumboots I was wearing because, <laughs> yeah because, I don't remember that <laughs> right well the gumboots that I had weren't all black they had a yellow sole to them and that's what I think uh, gave you the idea that maybe this wasn't really Santa but the two years before that neither you nor Kylie had any idea that it was me. See, the only way I actually remember it is because we've got the photo there, and I remember seeing the photo for many years, and then you finally said, you do realise that's me in the photo, and I'm like, (laughs) oh, damn it. (laughs) How old were you at the time? Trevor, about 15? Oh, I reckon (laughs) it was about 25. (laughs) I think you would have been about seven or eight. Yeah, Kylie looks about five or six in it, so yeah, Yeah. that that would work. But do you remember the time when we went to visit your Uncle Sue and Auntie Peter 
Oh, sorry. <laughs> uh, Auntie Sue and Uncle Peter. Uh, Dan Rosebud. <laughs> I, I remember having having a conversation about the Easter Bunny. Yep. We had been, I think, quite clever in keeping the truth of the Easter Bunny and uh, Father Christmas from you. And you were out playing with uh, some other kids at the caravan park. Mm-hmm. And you came to me pretty close to tears saying that they said that these other boys had said that uh, the Easter Bunny uh, that no originally it was Father Christmas wasn't real mm-hmm. and I thought well it's about time so I may as well not try and uh, keep up the uh, pretense anymore so I said that's correct and uh, then you asked about the Easter Bunny and I said that's correct and you asked and and then I threw in about the Tooth Fairy as well <laughs> Just to rub it in. Yeah, just to rub it right in. But That's um, right, we've been lying to you your entire life. <laughs> and you were rather upset and you said uh, you said to me, Don't tell Kylie because I don't think she could handle it. <laughs> Which was I thought was rather nice. Yeah. And uh, and but I I then start, spoke to you about the fact that, well, given it was never true never to worry about the fact that it was going to change what Christmas or Easter meant for for, for our family purposes anyway because mm. uh, we were always going to continue on doing what we do. Yep. And I don't know how long it took you to get over it, over it completely. In fact, are you over it yet? <laughs> um, I Mostly. think I got over it yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Didn't take long. No. Well, it was only a few weeks ago, right? That you found out. So, <laughs> I I remember going through. It was the next Christmas, and King's Quest Six had just come out, and <laughs> and you'd bought it for me for Christmas, and I knew I was getting it, and I I went and said the stupid thing of thanks, mum and dad, <laughs> <laughs> instead of thanks, Santa, and the. And it was sort of like, did Kylie notice? No, she didn't. Good. <laughs> managed to get through it, but I, I was like, oh, I'm a dick. <laughs> did you, um, with only one younger sibling, maybe there wasn't as much involved, but when I sort of found out about Santa, I fairly quickly wanted to then become part of the tradition and helped mum and dad sort of put out the presents and, you know, take a bite out of the carrots that we left for the reindeers and stuff. Did you Did you get involved uh, no, in the trial? I don't remember taking taking part if you in that if you had such many years later yeah okay now uh, we we can always remember uh one year trevor's mum and i were in our, our family room at our at our home and we were assembling a bike i believe it was and uh trev got up to go to the toilet and we had to quickly get to a position where he wasn't going to come downstairs and, uh, and spoil the surprise and whatever <laughs> so uh, let him go to the loo and then ushered him back to bed said goodnight to him and then had a bit of a laugh ourselves about boy that we we're nearly sprung <laughs> yeah I'm looking forward to that <laughs> I, I, I remember having one Christmas Eve I was having a really bad nightmare and I I swear I was seeing like outside my window I saw flashlights going everywhere and it was like it was really creeping me out I mean I don't blame you you thought some weird guy was going to come into your house in the middle of the night yeah <laughs> so what it turns out is yeah but the guy had it was, a beard it was, 
It was actually Dad oh, yeah. and Mum putting the um, putting the trampoline up outside, uh. <laughs> <laughs> and it wasn't actually a dream at all. I actually, you know, I was seeing them them moving the flashlight around trying to put it up. Oh God! So you're sitting there all excited about Christmas Eve until suddenly you're freaking out because there are people outside with flashlights. There's people you? outside, <laughs> and I didn't want to fall asleep. And I was like, Oh God! <laughs> Could move and all this sort of stuff. <laughs> but um. And thing is, you wake up the next morning, and of course you don't go outside, so we're just we're just inside, and you know you're wondering where all your presents are. Oh, we ha- <laughs> we had mum and dad always always were very very generous yeah. with their gift giving, and um, they said, oh, wonder wonder whether we should go outside, and it's probably like because neither of, neither of us were ever going to go. Oh, let's go outside. Yeah, you're like, no, I'm playing with my He Man. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. Um, we were talking about toys that I had growing up before Dad, mm-hmm. and Ben was very jealous of, of <laughs> all the toys I had growing up. It's <laughs> true. Me. My parents didn't really do action figures, so... So, I had, you know, all the things that he wanted, like Voltron and all the turtles and like that. We were talking about the massive fort that you made for me. Yeah, that sounded awesome. Yeah, just just how how great you were. Can you make me one now? <laughs> Did I ever tell you about the fort that uh, your granddad made for me? No. Okay. So, Mum had died and uh, he was a, a carpenter, he was a maintenance person, and he made me a fort with a, a wind-up um, drawbridge. Magnificent oh, see, it was. You didn't make a, you didn't make a wind-up drawbridge for me. I feel cheated. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to electri- I was going to make it electric, but uh, couldn't get the motor to, to work. <laughs> so anyway, um, I, I don't know how long I had the fort for, but uh, and back in those days, uh, uh, we I had an air gun, and uh, it was lots of fun to to do. So I used to set up cowboys and Indians around the fort, and used to use the air gun to shoot at them, <laughs> and. Uh, one particular day, I decided that the Indians should win, so I set fire to the fort. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> and, and, and I got the biggest belting I ever got from my dad. Oh, man. <laughs> but I bet you had a good time. Like, that oh. must have been the, the, most, the best battle of all time. Oh, it certainly was. The trouble was you couldn't repeat it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I, I, I'm remembering that um, just after just after I think it was either Riley or James was born and um, you decided on the name Granddad instead of like Pa or as Mum's dad was Pa and your dad was um, Pop for me growing up and I remember you saying after a while it goes oh I've just realised that it, I chose Granddad because Granddad was my favourite grand- grandparent growing up and I was thinking I worked that out ages ago. <laughs> Why didn't you work it out? <laughs> and and he was my only grandparent that I yeah. knew, and uh, he he was a um, yeah. Again, the, the mistakes you make growing up. He was a ventriloquist. He. That's never worked. a mistake. <laughs> no, 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 no. He actually worked on the stage, and we used to have these flyers with his stage name on it, and. We threw them out, and I uh, have forgotten what his, what his stage, stage name, name was. was, and I have no idea. Oh, that's a shame. And that's Would, a real um, shame. John or Alan know? Uh, well, I haven't spoken to John and that or Alan for... Crikey. Three years? 
would have been about three years. Yeah, it would James have been three years. at the time that we were talking about. Yes. Seeing them again. Yep. So, um, and and that, so I suppose I could, but I've made every effort to uh, contact them and they haven't made the equivalent effort to call me. And that's why I said before that I believe I believe in my step siblings as being my brothers and sisters yeah. more than I do them. Mm. Well, especially us growing up, like I, I remember spending a lot more time with Russell, DJ, Andrea, and um, Glennis, and of course the later edition of Marie. You didn't go into Marie. No, I didn't. At all. And uh, Ben's conversation before about his parents fostering. Um, that happened with us as well. Mum mm-hmm. and dad, and when I say mum, my stepmum, and dad decided to do uh, some fostering and they got a, uh, a baby girl and fostered her for, I suppose, about 12 months. And then they decided to uh, go through the adoption process and actually adopted her. So she became the eighth, oh, my seventh sibling, if you like. So eight children in total. What what must have been weird growing up, though, Dad, is you've you've had these two older brothers, and then all of a sudden, you've got this stepbrother who is also named David. Yes, because DJ's name is actually David John. Now, was John his middle name? Yes, it was. Yeah, and and they chose to call him David John as opposed to calling me David, David Christopher, Christopher. <laughs> which would have been a mouthful. And then, or DC. <laughs> yeah, well, that, that could have been interesting. Um, so, and obviously we narrowed it down to DJ because there's so much, there's almost a, a, an in thing to do. Mm-hmm. And that was rather good. But you talk about the differences in growing up. Bear in mind, my mum had died when I was very young. Mm-hmm. For the next three years or so I was spoiled rotten when the show time came around um, I wasn't allowed to go to the show but my older brothers did and they were given the responsibility of bringing me back show bags and <laughs> and they would bring me back around about and I'm guessing here but it'd be about 15 to 20 show bags <laughs> and then um when it came to Christmas time, uh, I would have two or three pillowcases filled with presents, toys, whatever it might be. And then going from being the spoiled kid of the family to then going to a joined family where you were lucky to get four or five presents at Christmas, it, mm. was, it was a dramatic change. Only two show bags. What's this about? <laughs> Sometimes only one. <laughs> oh, my. Oh. And you had to be careful what you asked for. <laughs> because if someone asked for one that was different and it was better, then yeah. you felt cheated. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I still remember, were you working out of the college? What was the the prison officer college? Loyola. Loyola. I had, I had a massive show bag because we went to the show and I brought it along because you... You had Kylie and I there, and we were playing with all these different things. And I had these, those two balls that when you touch them together, they they spark. Oh, I love those. Those things, those things were awesome. But 
what I also had that day was I had a banana and I just left it in the bag. <laughs> I remember getting to it about three or four weeks later, and I'm just remembering it because there were the the college was a, was a lot of fun, but because it was so much so much running around that Kylie and I did, it was sort of like you you'd forget about your food. Well. A blackened banana will very soon make you not want to want to look in in the show bag again. And I remember putting the show bag to the side. I suppose, Trev, you really need to tell your listening audience that Loyola was uh, the prison officer college that yes. trained new recruits. And I had a... Uh, a maybe, role there. Maybe about a year and a half that I did a role of being an instructor out there. Yes. Teaching the new recruits the act of parliament that we had to uh, be ruled by and uh, how to behave, how to uh, deal with prisoners, how to look after yourself within the prison system. That that was a fun time. I mm. really enjoyed that. Mm. And I, I remember you had a um, you had a mug that from the mall that they all signed. Was that right? Uh, it was engraved. They engraved. Yeah. Yeah. And in actual fact. Uh, got it within reach of where I am. <laughs> there you go. That's how much it meant to you. <laughs> okay. Okay. Now, this was a different group of people. This a was... A different group of people. Uh, <laughs> the, it did just got a whole shelf. A whole shelf full <laughs> the, of engraved mugs. People love these you. Weren't, these weren't uh, prison officers. These were industry supervisors. So, these were people with skills in certain areas, and uh, they were going into prison to teach uh prisoners about their skills um, and to because uh, there's a lot of industries that were done in prisons uh, when I was there they used to do the number plates and things like that so uh, this was again to teach these guys how to behave how to conduct themselves and uh, to be safe and, and legal because yeah, uh, always the possibility that someone might bring contraband inside mm. i remember the college really not being a good place for children given that i remember in the lunchroom i think it was the first time i ever saw someone shotgunning a beer because <laughs> i remember someone putting a hole in the bottom of a can and, and opening the top and going what the hell are they doing and i think you you ushered me out of the room very quickly <laughs> different memories i don't remember that <laughs> it was actually him it was actually your dad shotgunning the beer no, that doesn't drink <laughs> anymore <laughs> after that day well we should probably finish up here unfortunately we had some we sort of didn't get to a lot of uh, actual parenting discussion so maybe we'll have to have you back on David well why not why not <laughs> well th- this was certainly a lot of fun I, I've been sitting here most of the time just going wow I forgot about these stories or I haven't heard this story in a long time and I was captivated. Hopefully our listening audience will also be captivated. You need to talk to your dad more often. (laughs) Got more important things to talk about than the past. So we're going to finish up there. Uh, You can visit us at our website on www.twosweerydads.com you can tweet at us on Twitter at Two Sweary Dads. You can find us on Facebook, facebook.com slash Two Sweary Dads. Uh, you can email us, podcast at Two Sweary Dads.com. 
Uh, please rate, review, subscribe to us on iTunes. That really helps us a lot and lets us get into the ears of more listeners. Um, we'd like to thank Kuradust, of which Ben and I are former members, I suppose you could call it, uh, <laughs> for the opening song, Tonight Party Tonight, and the closing song, Predictive Text. And Trevor, do you have any final thoughts for us today? So, Dad, um, do you reckon we could play some Borderlands this weekend? Oh, I don't know. I think you're going to have to go and ask your mum. <laughs> <laughs>